0: Welcome to
1: the Martech podcast. Today we're going to talk about the science of machine learning in marketing. Joining us is Dwayne Veron, who is the founder and CEO of Media Science, which is a lab-based audience research provider incorporating a range of neuro measures including biometrics, facial expression analysis, eye tracking, EEG and more. With state-of-the-art labs in New York, Chicago, and Austin, Media Science is discovering actionable insights in advertising, technology, media, and consumer trends. And today, Dr. Dwayne and I are going to discuss how machine learning and artificial intelligence are changing consumer research. All right, here's the first part of my conversation with Dr. Dwayne Varon, co-founder and CEO of Media Science. Dr. Duane, welcome to the Martech Podcast.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan.
1: Excited to have you as our guest. Excited to talk a little, you know, of the more technical side of marketing. This is the MarTech podcast. Normally, we kind of focus on the Mar part. And you're going to bring some tech influence here in the sense of machine learning, artificial intelligence, some of the more sophisticated technologies we use. Let's start off talking a little bit about media science. In the description of this podcast, I mentioned biometric facial expression, eye tracking, EGG, those sound like really complicated technologies. How are they actually being used in marketing?
2: I mean, they are complicated, of course. The issue that we address in our research is that when you're talking about marketing, above all, you're talking about human emotion. But the tools that we use to get to human emotion usually depend on self-report. In other words, whether it's a focus group or a survey or an interview, we're relying on what people tell us about their emotional journey. The problem is people lack an understanding of their own emotional journey. So when you ask a person a question about how they feel about something, what they're giving you is the rational interpretation of what they think they must be feeling. And that's actually far removed from their actual emotional encounter. So what we do at Media Science is we want to measure that emotional response directly rather than being just dependent upon what people tell us about it. So the tools that you mentioned are all tools that are designed to get at measuring that emotion directly. I mean, they are fairly complex. One of the reasons they're complex is because they vary person to person. So you can't do this against a generic set of measures. You have to actually calibrate for the individual. And then you have to actually look at that individual's response relative to their data universe, so to speak, so that you can situate them in terms of what it means for them against the data, but very exciting because it just exposes layers of data that we don't see otherwise.
1: It's interesting. You're working on the cutting edge of marketing technology. And normally I think of marketing technology being how do we connect data sources together, automate our marketing efforts. And your company has a little bit of a different take there in the sense of you're trying to understand what people are thinking, not what people are saying. So first and foremost, when we try to interpret how our consumers are thinking reacting behaving a lot of what we're doing is focusing on research consumer research surveys trying to get some sort of data source to calculate brand perception interest uh, why consumers choose the behaviors they do talking about some of the ways that the advanced technologies that media science relies on has changed consumer research
2: One thing that's nice about media science is we also publish a lot of our research. We believe as a philosophy that because we want to practice good science, that we should put our research up to the scrutiny of peer review. In fact, last week, there was a review of the past decade of published academic research. So this is the kind of stuff that professors and academics typically, you know, the journals, the top tier journals that they publish in, And we worked out that if media science was a university, we would rank 25th in the world, the only non-academic entity to kind of like break into the top 50, if you will. So we take that part of our our mission very serious. And the reason I say that is the research I'm about to talk to you about was actually published in an academic journal. And what we did, it was research that we did for Mars, the company that does M&Ms, among other things. And it was a study that we did in collaboration with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute at the University of South Australia. And what we did is Mars has really good data on the actual in-market performance for a lot of their ads. They use single source data, which means they track the same people from their exposure to the media to their actual purchase behavior. So they're able to say that this ad translated into high m M&M and sales and this ad translated into very low m M&M and sales. Very expensive research to do, but Mars does a great job at getting at that level of data. So the challenge was for us to take 100 Mars ads, test them using our methods, also test them using traditional survey-based methods, and compare the results. We were blind to the ultimate in-market performance. We didn't have that data. We just had to generate our own data both ways and compare them. And where survey data was about 54% accurate in predicting ultimate in-market success, which is not a lot better than chance.
1: 4% better than chance.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the addition of the biometrics took that up to 78% in terms of correctly identifying ads that were in market successful. So this is a significant advance over the traditional tools that we have available to us for correctly identifying, if you will, ads that will succeed ultimately in the marketplace.
1: So talk to me about how you're testing this. I know that there's the different types of biometrics that you're using. Are you getting a 1000 people that are exposed to an ad and reading their facial recognition when you're seeing the ad be exposed and assuming that's some sort of a signal of positive reaction versus negative reaction or what are you testing?
2: So there's not one measure, there are many measures. For example, one of the best in class measures for attention is your heart rate. In fact, your heart slows when you allocate more of your body's resources to paying attention to something. So we're looking for that cardiac deceleration, for that slowing of the heart rate, if you will. So we're able to look at particularly the first three or four seconds of an ad to see whether or not we have a cardiac deceleration, which tells us whether or not people are actually tuning into the ad or ignoring the ad. That turns out to be a hugely important measure because if you don't have attention, well, your prospects of having a successful ad are going to diminish significantly. So people come into the labs. We do have an in-home panel as well, but we don't use it as frequently or in the same context, but typically they come in the lab. We have mock living rooms. We have cubicles, lots of these kind of stations. We have over a hundred cubicles across our labs and people come in. They typically watch a TV show or it might be a study that's looking at social media. They might go on their own Facebook page. In fact, when it's social media, our test ads are actually inserted into their own Facebook feeds. They're on their own feed, seeing posts from their friends and all that. And the test ads they see in that encounter will actually be the test ads that we've placed there. Or as I said, they're watching a TV show and the ads in the breaks are test ads that we've placed there. And then we measure their response while They're exposed to that to understand how they react to that, whether that's through their galvanic skin response, through their heart rate, through their facial muscle movement.
1: Hang on, hang on. Galvanic skin response. You got to tell me what that means.
2: So galvanic skin response is just moisture in your skin. So when you get excited or when you react strongly to something, you will sweat more. This is very, very, very subtle uh, fluctuations in the moisture in your skin.
1: How sweaty a person is, got it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't sound as good when you say it that way. (laughs) So what we do is we have uh, sensors on two fingers and we have a microcurrent that you can't even perceive and it goes on one finger and then we receive it on the other finger and we measure the speed at which that signal moves across your skin. And we can tell based on that signal because of course the wetter the skin is, the faster that will move. And so we can tell what that speed is. And that is a fantastic measure of the intensity of your reaction to the content that you're experiencing. It doesn't tell you the direction. Like if you see Trump, you may have a very strong response to that. That could be positive. It could be negative. That measure alone does not tell you the direction. It just tells you the intensity of the reaction. So it's one measure among manys.
1: I've been living under a rock for the last six years. Who's this Trump person you speak of? (laughs) I take it back, don't tell me. (laughs) Let's get back onto the marketing stuff. I just broke my own rule of never mentioning or talking about politics on the podcast. People, I don't care what your political preferences are. I just want to help you be a good marketer. That's the other Ben Shapiro's show.
2: One thing we might do, Ben, it is actually interesting. It's not as political as you think, but it is interesting because we did study the presidential debates in 2016. And it was a great example of seeing the benefits of these measures, because, of course, rationally, people have very strong feelings about Trump, independent voters, for example, but they were really attracted by his decisiveness. And you could see that in the data. So there are things I mean, we don't have to go there, but it is really fascinating because you do see stuff that you can't see in the real world, so to speak.
1: I hear what you're saying, and I do want to take this away from politics, but I understand how understanding how people are feeling and some of their physical reactions to media, whether it be advertising, whether it be to politics, and measuring that I could see as being a very powerful tool. Now, I guess the question that I have is you're talking about measuring somebody's heart rate in a lab setting that is not meant to be comfortable, but clearly you have to have some sort of machinery hooked up to a person to gauge what their response is. So look, if you come and you tape an EKG onto me and you're putting measures on two of my fingers and telling me to scroll through my Facebook feed, I might feel differently about that. And I might be, let's just say, have a different level of comfort in the lab knowing that I'm being analyzed than I would on my couch when I'm being my true and authentic self. How much do you think about or try to gauge what the variance is based on the lab setting and knowing that you're having somebody that is clearly being tested as opposed to experiencing the media in the field? What's the difference between lab and field data?
2: It's a great question, and it is a valid issue. It's one of the reasons why at Media Science, philosophically, we want to make the measures as non-invasive as possible. So even though we measure EEG, which you know requires sensors on your head, even though we have methods that are a little bit more aggressive in terms of picking up these measures, our philosophy is to use the measures which are least invasive, specifically because of the very reasons that you talk about. We want to make the experience as natural as possible. Thus, for example, the reason why we go to an extent to create like a mock living room experience for people to get them absorbed in their normal kind of like encounter. So what we've done in a lot of our research is demonstrate how measures like galvanic skin response and heart rate are just as good as more aggressive measures like EEG. And in that way, we're able to kind of like keep the experience as natural as possible. So that's a big part of what we do.
1: Time for a one minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost effective. Request a demo at Mutinex.co. That's M U T I N E X.co. I'm fascinated by some of the measures your sweatiness, your heart rate. What are some of the other things that you can measure? You know, your heart rate decreasing infers attention. Your galvanic response infers interest. What are some of the other signals that you can gain from other types of tests?
2: Yeah, so we measure facial muscle movement. When you think something is funny, your zygmatic muscle, which is at the end of your lip, is more likely to move upwards. Corner of your mouth. Yeah, the corner of your mouth is going to move upwards. A very good measure of humor. People who are born blind at birth display exactly the same facial gestures as everybody else to denote their emotions. So your emotions are hardwired to your face. So if we can measure the muscle movement on your face, we're getting a very good indication of your underlying emotional states. We track eye movement. So we look at uh, what you, you know, we have infrared cameras that create a reflection in your eye and measure the movement of that to see what you're looking at specifically on screen. That's a very powerful indication. If there is a response, what is it on screen that is eliciting that response? We do response latency, which is the speed of your response if I say to you, Volvo and safety, you'll respond faster to that association than if I say Volkswagen and safety, you'll have to think a little bit more about whether you think that association is formed. So the speed of your response tells us a lot. So these are the kinds of measures that we get at.
1: Fascinating. When you think about the consumer research aspect, you mentioned that Mars and M&M, this is a large scaled multi-billion, I'm assuming a multi-billion dollar company, uh, obviously great brand recognition. And so they're testing individual ads to understand what's going to perform better in market. What are some of the other types of customer research that marketers have been using media science for?
2: Well, pretty much every major TV network group is or has been a client of ours. And a lot of where we have really specialized and developed expertise is anytime somebody comes up with something new and innovative. In fact, over the past decade, pretty much every major advance in the TV advertising industry was first tested at Media Science. So this is things like if you have a picture in picture ad that's inserted, say you're watching a football game and it's the end of the game and people are shaking hands or there's a ref call. And there's a short six second ad that might appear picture in picture, you know, inside the game experience itself. We've tested that. We know that that ad is actually more effective than a traditional ad, pause ads, anything you can think of that's a major innovation that's happened in the past decade. That was first tested at Media Science, And that's a big part of what we do, particularly because in many cases, we're testing something that doesn't even exist in the real world. So we have the software engineers to kind of like make it happen, so to speak, and we test it. So I think anytime people encounter a problem where they're looking at something thinking, oh my God, how do we deal with this? (laughs) We're the people that they call. So that's where we particularly specialize.
1: You know, there is a user experience, and this is a little bit out of the topic of machine learning and user experience, but you mentioned the TV companies are coming to you and it's advertising related. When we cut the cord in my household... And we originally went to DirecTV, which got bought by AT&T TV, and then we switched over to YouTube TV. And every once in a while, when I'm watching a baseball game, an ad will come up and say, this break is brought to you by, and it'll say D- YouTube TV or, or at t whichever provider we had at the time. Both of them have had this experience. And I'm wondering if this is a branding experience, because they realized that if you put a pause in the commercial and you just played some music and had a static image, Does that affect the rest of the media or is it purely they just didn't sell all of their inventory and that's the placeholder? I'm just curious. Do you know if that was an intentional move? Because I actually think it's a wonderful break from the noise of the advertisement in between the commercial breaks. Any thoughts?
2: I don't know in that specific example, but you are right. We have tested the idea of an interstitial kind of as a pillar and a bridge, if you will, to help get you through the ad break. And the interstitial does help. Now, of course, that comes at a cost because that's lost revenue, like if you could have an ad there. So you have to kind of like look at the trade-off between the gain that you get by getting a better pod, a better break versus what you've lost in revenue. But it's definitely a viable idea, if you will.
1: I think if I ever did a OTT ad for the MarTech podcast or some sort of a business, one thing that I would consider, and it's a little bit like a Corona ad, it would be a voiceover that says, this commercial break is bought to you by the MarTech podcast. And then just have like a peaceful, serene sound, basically rip something off from com.com, have a beach with some sound of some wave crashing. And all it says on the screen with the beach in the background is download the MarTech podcast and give a QR code or something and not have it be an ad actually have it be a commercial break.
2: It's been done, Ben. Don't tell me this because
1: I was just about to ask you (laughs) if I was going to try to figure out if that type of ad experience was a good one. How would you go about testing it? What consumer research would you put together to test that experience?
2: So what we would do in that specific example is we would test two versions of the ad. You would have what was your traditional ad, which is, hey, this is Ben Shapiro. Don't miss my next Martech podcast. It's awesome. Lots
1: of noise. (laughs) Martech podcast. Right.
2: Yeah. Lots of sound effects or whatever. And then we would have the second version, which would be, as you say, the calming, no hard sell. And we would have people watch a show. In one case, they'd experience that. The other case, they'd experience the calm. We we would compare it. And we would be able to tell you how people experience it. Are they actually calmer? It could be that there's something that you didn't predict. It actually has totally the opposite effect. You go into that, and people are like getting ticked off. What are these guys trying to do? They're trying to trick me. I mean, who knows? People's reaction to stuff is unpredictable.
1: They're trying to mind F me into relaxing. I want to go back to the baseball game and get back worked up.
2: Yeah. And then the league may have questions. They may want to know what impact something like that would have on the game. Do people go back in the game in a lower state of excitement? There are tons of questions that people typically have around, not so much the ad creative like you've described, but particularly a new format. Because that's going to be something that's going to impact many ads. And so they're going to want to know what the effect is on many ads, not just one ad.
1: So my guess is if you're running this ad that is meant to be disruptive in the sense that it's not what's expected, and it is meant to create a serene response and hopefully build a positive brand impression, and then somebody maybe think about it later and take the call to action... But if I'm trying to get someone to calm down, I'm basically trying to grab their attention for a second and then have it go down. So are you looking for decreased heart rate at first and then they're not paying attention so the heart rate grows up and I don't necessarily want their attention? So how do you figure out the galvanic response, the sweatiness response? What's the actual signal you would be looking for?
2: In this case, we would do something very different. We would have a second experiment that people would be participating in, which would be really looking at trying to get at the brand associations. In that second follow-up experiment, we often do this with people where they take part in one experiment, we say, oh, you've also qualified for another study if you'd like, watch a different show or something. And what we're getting at is we're trying to create a little bit of distance. So in that case, we might use like response latency to see whether or not people had formed a better association with your brand. We often do a brand lift metric where we test people like about a week before they come in. So we would see what their association was with MarTech a week before. This is by making paired choices, you know, MarTech versus another podcast or whatever. And then we test them again after the exposure to see if there is a change that's happened. I mean, there are a variety of tools that we'd be using to try to measure the change that was produced. So we'd be looking at the combination of how people experienced it and whether your theory was right about how people were experiencing it. And then also kind of like what the payoff was that you got as a consequence.
1: All right, last question I have for you on this topic. Last question I have for you today. Why is conducting this type of research better, faster, and cheaper than me just taking the two ads running one of them for a week, putting a pause, running the other one for a week, and then looking at the three sets of data, one with the com ad, one with no ad, and one with the bananas ad.
2: This goes to, again, the question of how it's being experienced. So let's say that you did that. You ran it in field and you had this data that came back and it looked like you got more calls or you had more viewers that had seen the one or however it is that we'd be measuring success. The problem is that you would, in all likelihood, reach some conclusions about why that was the case. And it's probable that the conclusions, or it's possible that the conclusions you reach would actually be flawed. You don't have the measures which show you what was happening kind of like along the way. So it's very easy for you to think that it was happening because of the particular approach that you did, when in actual fact, it might have been something else altogether. We did a really interesting study in the UK where we took tons of data that they had off of their system that B-Sky-B had on their platform to look at why people were responding to ads. And they had drawn conclusions, which it actually turned out were completely flawed because some of the market leaders who succeeded did something, but the ads worked despite the fact that they did that, not because they did that. So it's very easy for you when you don't have the why you know, all you have when you do something like that is the what you don't really get at the why you need the measures along the way to understand how that was actually being experienced to really be able to get at the why.
1: How do you figure out the why through the testing methodology? Just because somebody has a sweaty hand and a lower heart rate doesn't mean that you know that they're using one ad because it's more calm as opposed to the background was blue and that resonates better with the logo when the call to action popped more. Could have been a format of the ad or could have been a distinct element of the ad that we're not considering. How do you actually know the why through the testing methodology?
2: What the measure gives us is a second by second layer of data. So the data that we're getting through a traditional method is kind of like the data in aggregate of what the effect was, but you can't slice it down to what happened second by second. But of course, these new neurometric measures give us second by second data. And that second-by-second data is aligned, of course, with the executional elements. So if something happens, you think, you assume that there must have been a positive response when X happened in the ad. But now you're able to look and see, was that actually the case? Or was that actually a non-event? Did that event come and go and the audience didn't even really notice it? So you're able to kind of like look at the moving parts, which is something you miss when you're testing the ad in aggregate. You don't really have the moving parts. So it's going to be dangerous for you drawing conclusions because you're making assumptions about how those moving parts worked rather than having actual data against it. So that's the difference that we're talking about. It's not the magic of any measure. The measures at the end of the day are aligned to specific objectives. The challenge for a brand is to take its communication objectives and to have best-in-class measures for each of those objectives to see whether or not it's delivering against that.
1: The advanced technologies of machine learning and artificial intelligence are incredibly impactful. Obviously, in consumer research, they've changed the game in understanding not only what is happening with your research, but why it's happening. There's also some other places where artificial intelligence and machine learning are impacting marketing. And we're going to talk about those in tomorrow's episode. So that wraps up this episode of the MarTech podcast. Thanks to Dr. Duane Varon, the founder and CEO of Media Science, for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Dr. Duane and I are going to continue the conversation talking about artificial intelligence innovations in the MarTech industry. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Dr. Dwayne, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter where his handle is Dwayne Varan. That's D-U-A-N-E-V-A-R-A-N. Or you can visit his company's website, which is mediascience.com.